Well, we are in chapter 17 of John's gospel in what is commonly called uh, his high or Jesus's high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying for his disciples, particularly as he will soon be arrested and crucified. And that what is coming for the, the disciples really is going to be an incredibly difficult time and, and arguably the harder time, though going through Jesus' arrest and trial and, and all of that will be really hard. Once Jesus has been resurrected and ascends to the right hand of the Father, arguably that will be the hardest time for them because the disciples will feel like they are alone. They will feel like Jesus has left them to do this impossible work in their own strength, but nothing really could be farther from the truth. Jesus has promised to them throughout John 13 through 17, this, this big chunk of, of John that we've been looking through for the last several months, that with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which would soon happen to them, God would indwell his people, making his home in them. And, and doctrinally, and we've been talking about this in the Sunday evening service as well, this, this is called union with Christ. Union with Christ, that, that God is really and truly in and with his people, both as a group like we are right now, but also as, as individuals. So if you belong to Christ, there is never a time that he is not with you. And when his church gathers, he gathers with his people too. So last week we looked at the first five verses of this passage and how Jesus' heart is, is set on the Father and the Father's will. That is what drives Jesus. It is what he delights in. It's what he longs to do. Well, this week, we're, we're going to take it up with verse one again, but we're going to add uh, three verses and focus on the, those next three verses and what it is Jesus says that the disciples actually and know, actually know and believe because of Jesus. So we are in chapter 17. Let's pick it up with, with verse one. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, as I've been thinking through over these last months, the book of John seems at first read so simple, but it can also be so incredibly deep. And even with these three verses we're looking at, I, I know we are just really the tip of the iceberg. So I pray for this time together with you and your word, that this would be a good word for us, that we would hit on things that we need to hear, things that will grow us in our love for you, things that will open our eyes to how much you love us and you delight in us and what you would have us to do and be because it is a good life, a life that you created for us. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I mentioned last week, this chapter, well, it's a lot like a, a densely woven you know, kind of masterpiece of a tapestry. And while really, I think the best thing we can do is probably read it all in one sitting. That's why I went back and reread the first five verses for us and then tacked on these next three. You know, for the sake of time and, and, and for study, it really is possible to go kind of verse by verse at a time and look at, at the genius of what Jesus says. You know, for my money, genius is always, it always comes across as simple. But when you really dig down deep with it, you start to see, whoa, there is so much here. And that's, that's how our passage works this morning, too. So to structure our time uh, this morning, we're basically going to look at verse 6 as foundational to the phrases that come after in verses 7 and 8. In fact, I think verse 6 could probably be a sermon just in itself. But what follows then in verses 7 and 8 are, are basically four things that Jesus says the disciples have come to know that are foundational to being his disciple, things that they know and believe as truth about Jesus. But before we get there, let's start with verse 6 and walk through that. Well, when Jesus says, I have manifested your name, that's a very specific phrase that, that has a lot of antecedents in the Old Testament. And what he has in mind is that he has made God's character, really his heart of hearts, known to his disciples. Now think back to how John chapter 1 begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. And so the persistent claim in the Bible, not just the Old, the, the Old Testament or the New Testament, but the Bible is that God is triune. He is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it is critical to understand that God the Father speaks through his Son, the Word. A person's heart, as we've just talked about with the confession of sin, is revealed by what you say, right? Your word, what you say, how you say it, your tone of voice, your word choice, what you choose to comment on, and th those comments themselves, all that stuff, when you think about speech, it reveals who you are. You can't help but reveal who you are by what you say. Well, so too God himself. God's word, Jesus, reveals who God is. So when you look at Genesis 1, what you see, according to John, is the Father speaking through his Son and the power of the Spirit. It is through the Son that all things were made, and it was for the Son that they were made to begin with. That's Paul's view in Colossians 1. So the Christian belief is that all of creation is not merely a reflection of God, though it is, it reveals him too. That this is commonly missed by non-Christians is not a fault of God or creation itself. It's the result of sin in which you know, humans either attribute creation to some other God or see creation as a neutral object that just randomly self-exists. Both are a denial of the true God. Now, here's what John writes starting in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is key now. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, so this word, this son of God, took on flesh in order to fully reveal God the Father because no one has seen the Father except the Son. Now think on that. Think on that for a minute. No angel, no spiritual creature, and certainly no human has ever taken in God the Father's face. Only the Son does this, and it's the Son's mission to make the Father known. So if you know Jesus, then you know the Father. If you have Jesus, then you have the Father. And this is exactly what chapter 17, verse 6 in our passage is after. Jesus has made God the Father known to his disciples and by extension through their ministry to us too. So if you want to know the one who made the heavens and the earth, if you want to know the Yahweh of the Exodus who spoke with Moses, look no further than to Jesus, because Jesus has made the true God known. Look to Jesus to know God. Jesus says that he has made God the Father known to the disciples whom God gave to him out of the world. So first notice that these disciples were given to Jesus by the Father. God chose these men, right? God chose these men, even as they had the responsibility, of course, to respond to that calling. So that's why you see uh, Jesus calling these men to follow him. And what do they do? They, they immediately leave everything and they followed him. Of course, not everyone followed Jesus. The story of the rich young man who, who Jesus challenged to sell us all his possessions and follow him immediately comes to mind, though there are many examples in the Gospels. The young man was, by all accounts, living a good life, right? Both, both materially and morally, and to the, the Jewish mindset of the day, those two things usually went together. If you are living a high moral life, they thought God would often bless you materially that way. And lots of people think that today, too. But even as he claimed to want eternal life with God, he refused to follow Jesus. And as Jesus said in 17.3, eternal life is not found in your possessions. It's not found in your experiences. It's not found in your moment-by-moment -moment happiness. No, eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ. You cannot know God without knowing the Son, and no one has access to the Father except through the Son. So when you hear people talk about all paths leading to God, or, you know, like all, all religions are the same, which only a liberal would say. I'm not trying to be pejorative, but that's just true. Only a liberal would say that. Or that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all worship the same God. No, they don't. That, that's, <laughs> that is not what Jesus teaches. And this is a perfect example of this. That, that's basically, again, I'm not trying to be pejorative. It's just lazy. That's lazy liberalism that rejects Jesus out of hand. No, the essence of, of true religion is knowing the true God through his son, 
in the power of the Spirit. And in Jesus' view, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life, no truth, no way apart from him. So think back to our confession of sin with Pythagoras. Was he right in saying no man is free until he can control himself? Yes. Was he capable of doing that apart from the son? No. And that's the point. There is no life, no truth, no way apart from Jesus. And this this was an offensive message in Jesus's day. And well, it is still an offensive message in our own day, but that is the way of truth sometimes. Now notice that Jesus says, the father gave the disciples to him from out of the world. And what he has in mind is is very much like a a change of of citizenship here. The disciples have moved from, from creations, right? Every human is a creation, to new creations in Christ from worldlings, so to speak, to to children of God, from this present evil age, which we all live in, to the kingdom of God that is already here, but not yet fully here, which all of us who know Christ participate in now. So though these disciples look the same and maybe sound the same, the disciples have a fundamentally different identity that has been given to them through Jesus. This is part of what baptism symbolizes, by the way. God has put his hand on you and marked you off as his own. See, to be in Christ is not to be your own at all. You are not a self-defining, self-made human. So when people ask who you are or who you want to be, the Christian answer, if we take the gospel seriously, is I am in Christ. I am in Christ. So to be a Christian, you see, transcends every other identifying marker about you. So your history, your failures, your triumphs, your sin, where you live, what you've done. No, all of those things are defined by and they find their meaning in Christ. That's why we can be a people who are unashamed. It's not because we decided, like, I'm just not going to be ashamed anymore. You can't tell. No. It's because we are defined in Christ. And he has taken our shame from us. So what God says about you and who he says you are is who you really are. It's not what the world says about you. It's not even what you say about you. It's what God says about you. And he calls you his beloved child. It's like what we confess sometimes with that confession that's called our world belongs to God. We typically confess these words. The rule of Jesus Christ covers the whole world. That's confessing the kingdom of God is at hand. To follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere without fitting in as light in the darkness, as salt in a spoiling world. So all of creation belongs to God and he has called us to be in this world, we're not to escape it. We're to be in this world, but not of it. That's why we won't fit in with the current state of affairs, even as we look and sound like other Americans, right? That's why we started our worship service off with Peter Lightheart's words, right? We're, we're not living as if it's climate change is gonna be the apocalyptic end of all things or that the pandemic is gonna wipe us all out. No, we know how the world ends. It ends in worship. 
It ends in song. It ends with the marriage feast of the Lamb. So we won't fit in with the way the world typically thinks about things. It's like what the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 32 and 34 teach. This is practically ancient, but they get it exactly right. The question is, why are you called a Christian? Great question. I am called a Christian because by faith, I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all of creation for all eternity. So this is just another way of saying, conform your life to Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian. That's your response to what Christ has done in you. Conform your life to him who himself confessed God's name and presented himself as a living sacrifice and fought against sin and the devil. You're just called to model your life on the one who saved you. The next question is, why do we call Jesus our Lord? We call him Lord because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has set us free from sin and from the tyranny of the devil and has bought us body and soul to be his very own. Again, put that against Pythagoras. You cannot control yourself, but your God can. And he has set you free in his son. We belong to Christ. That is who we are. We are not our own. Now, of course, to say all of this sounds like death to our culture, but it's life. No, death, if we take the Bible seriously, is to be on your own. It is to be on your own. It's to define your life however you see fit. It's to belong to yourself. And good luck with that. But notice that Jesus says his disciples were gifts to him from the Father. Now, we don't typically see ourselves as gifts to Jesus. Usually it's the other way around. And of course, that's exactly right. Salvation and life with God is absolutely a gift. But clearly, Jesus sees his disciples and by extension, us as gifts from God to him as well. Now, I'm not gonna belabor this, but this is just further evidence that God actually delights in you. He delights in you. He desires you. He wants what's best for you, and he loves you. It's not an accident that you belong to him and are his disciples. You are his disciple because he wants you. Well, it's the final phrase of verse six that I think is so unexpected. Jesus says, and they have kept your word. And of course, he's speaking, he's praying to the father at this point. Usually when we read phrases like this, they have kept your word, it means that someone has been faithful and obedient. And when you consider the context, the whole context of John 13 through 17, which is happening over the course of just one evening, Jesus has already told his disciples that one of them would outright betray him and the rest of them would be scattered. So taken in light of that, this is kind of a puzzling statement. And what many commentators think, and I'm in agreement with this, is that this is actually a forward-looking prophetic statement. Now, have the disciples already grown in their obedience? Yes. Yes, they have, but they're still pretty far off. So it's kind of like when you read this statement, to my mind, it's, it's like when Alabama, for example, got matched with Cincinnati in the first round of the playoffs. Had they won that game yet? No. Was there any doubt they would win that game? No. 
You know, not a single snap of the ball had been made, and yet people said, oh, they've already won that. We've got to look on you know, to the championship. That's how Jesus sees his disciples. Because of his victory over sin and death and the coming pouring out of the Spirit, his disciples would keep his word. And though they initially failed to keep it, though they would struggle with sometimes very public sins, by the way, like how Peter, for example, drew back from fellowship with the Gentiles because of pressure from Jewish Christians, and Paul called him out in front of all the other apostles is denying the gospel because of it. I mean, can you think of a more tension-filled situation? I cannot, right? Jesus is confident that they would keep his word and be his faithful witnesses. And of course, they did. They did keep his word, and they passed it along to future generations of the church through their writings, and we call it the New Testament. Because the apostles' faithfulness, because they kept his word, this word which was at work in them through the Spirit, we too know Jesus. I mean, here we are studying John's gospel. Now, that the disciples have come to know Jesus, they in turn, as as the commentator Bruner points out, know four fundamental things, four realities about who Jesus is. So it's not enough to simply think Jesus exists or he was a good teacher or did incredible stuff. No, to understand and know Jesus rightly, to actually know him, uh, involves these four fundamental truths about Jesus. So first, that everything the Father gave to Jesus and that the, the disciples had experienced in Jesus, it actually comes from the Father. Second, that the words the Father gave to Jesus are the very words Jesus gave to them. And the disciples have accepted these words as such. Third, that Jesus really, and not figuratively, came from the right hand of the Father. And then fourth, the disciples have come to believe that God sent Jesus. Well, if you were listening to those, you you could tell they're all related to each other. They all overlap in meaning and kind of emphasis. But even so, let's, let's just take each one of these things at a time because Jesus means something slightly different with each one. Verse seven says, This is Jesus speaking. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So in the beginning, just think back to the beginning part of Jesus' ministry. Like so much of the crowds that followed Jesus, the disciples, they were impressed with what a a remarkable human Jesus was. And they marveled at the miracles he performed and they wondered who he might be. I mean, who is this that, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Remember that scene? However, they eventually began to see that God the Father was at work in through Jesus in a way that no one had ever seen before. It's the difference, for example, between recognizing like Nicodemus in chapter three or initially with the Samaritan woman at the well of, of John chapter four, that Jesus you know, was perhaps an incredibly insightful teacher or a prophet maybe, that his God was, was with him like, like God was with Moses or or Elijah, which is, you know, that's pretty special, versus recognizing that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, sent from the right hand of God the Father. And as important as Moses is, there's a critical difference in being, in being, in existence, in who he is between Moses and Jesus. It's why when, when Thomas sees Jesus after his resurrection, his response 
is rightly my Lord and my God. He doesn't say my incredible teacher. He doesn't say my rabbi or my brother. He says my Lord and my God. So it's pretty common for people to recognize that Jesus was a great teacher or maybe even a miracle worker. It's another thing to worship him as equal to God the Father. This is why Jesus is at the center of our worship. That's the Christian distinction. Well, here's what Jesus says in the next uh, part of verse eight. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. So Jesus, let's just work through this. Jesus is both God and man, sent from God the Father. And as we've already talked about, he is the word of God who gives the very words of God. So Jesus's teachings, just think of the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, or any of those kinds of teachings. Jesus' teachings were not merely the teaching of a genius philosopher or some moral ethicist. So he's not like the Buddha or Confucius or Plato or something like that. No, his words carry the authority of the creator God because they are his words. His word does not merely teach, though it does, His word gives life. That's why the crowds marveled at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus spoke with the authority of God. So let's put this in context. It's one thing for me to stand before you and teach and preach God's word well, even. I mean, my whole job is to teach God's word, but this isn't my word, right? This isn't my word. I don't speak with my own authority. I'm just a servant whose job it is to relay the message correctly. So, for example, I can say things like, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. But I can never say, by my authority, your sins are forgiven. Do you see the difference? Jesus spoke with God's authority because he is the word of God. His words are God's words, and he fully reveals the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is wholly different. He's a whole different category. The second phrase of verse eight says this, and they, that is the disciples, have come to know in truth that I came from you. So Jesus is not merely an inspired man. We've already talked about it. It's not like Moses in that he heard God's word and reported it to his disciples. No, he came from the throne room of God, from the right hand of the Father, and is his beloved Son. Now, tack that on to the final phrase of verse 8, which overlaps in meaning with this too. He says, and they have believed that you sent me. So, God the Father sent his Son to redeem the world, and Jesus is that son. It's like the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, where Jesus likens the father to the owner of a vineyard, and that vineyard is Israel. So God set tenants in that parable over the vineyard to work it and to gather his crop. The tenants in the the parable are are the leaders of, of Israel. So God sent his servants to collect the crop, right? To collect what was owed him. And typically his servants were men like the prophets. And the tenants, in response, they beat and killed God's prophets and in turn treated Israel as if it belonged to them. That's the history 
of Israel leading all the way up to Jesus' day where God sent to them prophet after prophet and they, they beat them and they rejected them and they killed them. In fact, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, that's the minority view. That's the minority view in Israel. The majority view rejected what the prophets said. And so when you get all the way to Jesus, that is God has sent his son finally and definitively. And what do they do? Some responded. Many did not. Many did not. So the question is, do you believe this is the one sent from God, that this is actually his son? And Jesus' point in the parable is that life and death is found in how we respond to him. It's like what John chapter 1, verse 9 says and following. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay, so when taken together, the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ is the belief that is summarized really in these these four pillars and and believed in light of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. One, that Jesus' life is explainable only in relationship to God the Father, the one who created the heavens and the earth through him and for him. Jesus then is both God and man. That's foundational. If you don't hold to that, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian if you don't hold to that. That Jesus' words are the very words of God. They aren't just some teaching. They are the way, the truth, and the life. So his words are not, what's the word? Optional. Now these are it. These are it. That Jesus came down from the right hand of God the Father. This is the third thing. And is not just some guy. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. No, he's not just even a holy man. No, he's the son of God. And in turn, that Jesus then is the fulfillment of everything God promised to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David. And that the hope of Israel was fulfilled in him. And in turn, the world. And that that is our only hope. So there's lots of ramification for these core beliefs, and we could take a lot of time to work through all the nuances of this. But let me just highlight two things. First, our hope then, if we're taking this word seriously, our hope then is centered on Jesus and nowhere else. That should be obvious, but you know, it's actually something we routinely reject. In fact, every time we come to the confession of sin, I'm tempted to make that what I talk about. The temptation is to believe that Jesus is irrelevant to your life right now. Now, maybe we believe he's got his way down the road, but not right now, not so much. So we tend to think that something else will fix us, or will ease our pain, or make things better, or will alleviate whatever thing we're, we're facing right now. And to be sure, there are short-term fixes that are useful and good, and we should make use of them. I mean, I think ibuprofen is a wonder drug. It's incredible, but it doesn't address my insecurities or my fears about the future. You know, our hope 
both in the short run and the long run, especially considering just how fleeting and hard our lives can be, it's found in Jesus alone. Second, your identity, who you are, is not your own creation. You do not define yourself. The reason I keep hammering this point in sermon after sermon is because one of the pillars of American culture is the exact opposite of this, that you create you. Be who you want to be, and it's at war against you. Every single one of us defaults to this belief that that we are our own, that we define ourselves, that we are these, these little isolated individuals and no one can tell us what to do. Don't tread on me, right? And it's killing us. It's killing us. I'm convinced the reason anxiety, depression, and stress are at astronomical levels across all demographics, despite the exorbitant material ease we enjoy as a culture, is because of this unbearable nature of this belief that we are our own. No, we were created for God and for each other. We do not belong to ourselves. I did not make myself. I do not save myself. I do not define myself. I can no more escape my history on my own than I can change my skin. You cannot. You cannot. This past Wednesday, Anne McQueen was buried. She lived a good, long life. But as I was reminded at her funeral by by Betty, uh, she had a really difficult and hard life too. She buried two of her children. One as a child, one as an adult. I completely forgotten about that. Her husband had PTSD from World War II. And I'm sure if we could ask her now, she'd tell us, listen, life goes by in a flash. And it's not that, that Anne was a strong woman. You know, to see her at, at 95 or so was to see an incredibly frail woman. You know, it's, it's not that Anne was strong in her own strength. She wasn't even her own. No, her life is not a testimony to her strength or resiliency. Her life is a testimony to her God and his strength. No one buries two children and simply moves on. No one lives to old age and doesn't carry wounds and scars. No one. So when we look at at, at Anne, we don't see a strong woman. Now, the world wants to see it that way, but we know better. We know better. No, we see our good God who made her and delights in her and holds her even now. That's why... Her funeral, like every Christian funeral, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. We mourn her death and the breakdown of her body. We should look at her and say, this is not what God intended for her. But we mourn with hope, not because any of us can overcome death or disease or aging or depression or anxiety. We we cannot in our own strength. No, it's because our God is with us and he indwells us and he has promised to never let us go. What is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, 
but belong to Jesus Christ, both in body and soul, in this life and the next. As Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flowers fade. And by the way, that's a metaphor for human life. But the word of our God will stand forever. And that word, he took on flesh, dwelled among us, and has given us life in himself as beloved children. In fact, he indwells us even in this moment through his spirit. That's who our God is. And that's who he says we are too. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. There is no God like you. Thank you for your grace, your kindness, your steadfastness, and that you will never let us go. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.